And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26 this morning. Yes, we are back in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26. And if you look at the very first verse, you'll see that we are in a transition here. Because the first few words of verse number 26 say this, And when Jesus had finished all these sayings. This is the fifth time that Matthew uses almost that exact phrase, and it's the final time. Each one of those phrases he puts at the conclusion or near the conclusion of a significant discourse of Jesus. And in fact, we have just finished uh, one of those longest of discourses, chapters 24 and 25 of the Gospel of Matthew, is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse. Or sometimes it's called the little apocalypse because of its apocalyptic themes. Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood and all that goes with it, and then also about his second coming in glory. But all of the teaching of Jesus is really prologue that sets the stage for the apex of his ministry which is now going to be unfolded for us in these last three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. These last chapters record Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And I don't know if you've ever realized it, but fully 20% of the Gospels are given over to those three events that really took place within just the last few days of Jesus' life. This is not without significance. For Paul himself tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, how He was buried and how He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This is central to our Lord's mission. Among people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus, it is fashionable to talk still about admiring the teachings of Jesus. You know, he said a lot of good things. He was a a good teacher. But I want to remind you that all that Jesus ever said only finds its proper context in what he did on that cross. And that becomes really the central theme for Christian preaching from the book of Acts and the earliest church preaching onward to today. That is what characterizes the gospel preaching in churches today. Um, Skeptics have explained Jesus' death as just a quirk of fate. You hear different explanations, right? Well, he was a well-meaning revolutionary who just ran too far afoul of the powers that be. Or Somebody says, well, he was an unfortunate visionary whose ideas were just too far ahead of his time, and so he was killed. Or he was a misguided prophet who just got carried away with his own importance. Or he was a good teacher who was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. But Matthew's testimony 
of Jesus' sense of purpose going to his death is crystal clear. Already in the Gospel of Matthew, he's recorded how Jesus predicted, not once, not twice, but three times already, that he must go to the cross, that he must die, and that he must rise again. Chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20, Jesus has been telling his disciples this again and again and again. And once again, in the text in front of us, you get the sense of destiny that even the timing of his death is purposed by God. And it is unmistakable. Look in chapter 26, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Verses 1 and 2. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. As Jesus says down in verse 18, in the middle of the verse, My time is at hand. It's here. I want you to be encouraged this morning and amazed and thankful that God himself has sovereignly planned your salvation. I hope that this text will cause that kind of response in your heart. What really stands out in this passage of Scripture, what really stands out more than anything else is that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was ordained by the sovereignty of God. The sacrifice of Christ was ordained by the sovereignty of God. Even the timing of that event was ordained and planned by God. The timing of Jesus' sacrifice was no accident. He says to the apostles, My time is here. My time is at hand. All of the history of the universe up to this point has finally come to its fruition. It is all centered on this one moment in history. Jesus says, My time is at hand. He says, Two more days. Two more days. And the Passover will be going on, and my death will be at the time of the Passover. And that is so significant. We're going to, Lord willing, spend more time on that next Lord's Day. The Passover, of course, was the time when the lambs were killed in the temple to commemorate God's salvation of his people from Egypt to commemorate his salvation by substitution and their deliverance from both the judgment of God and from the tyranny of sin. Passover. Passover was one of the three great Jewish festivals in which men from all over the area would come and gather into Jerusalem, it would be packed. Every place you could find a spare room was sold out and packed, and all of the surrounding villages were uh, holding lodgers of all sorts, and all peoples and, and, and Jews from all over the place would come for this great time. 
And Passover was God's ordained time for the sacrifice of His Son. In John chapter 7, earlier in Jesus' ministry, there was another festival and the brothers, his, Jesus' own brothers, his physical brothers, urged him to go up to Jerusalem and to make himself known publicly, to show himself as the Messiah. And Jesus said to them in John chapter 7, verse 6, my time has not yet come. He had a very keen sense of the providential outworking of God, of his, the plan for his life, and exactly when and the way in which his life would be laid down. Not until God's ordained time would he lay down his life, or would anyone be able to take his life away from him. Though, of course, many times people tried before his time came. For example, even at his birth, you remember what happened? Herod sought to eliminate this, what he saw as a challenge to his own throne, this king of the Jews purportedly, by slaughtering all of the children two years and under in that whole area. But in the providence of God, his family, Jesus' family, was led away into Egypt. Or think about later on in Jesus' ministry, in Nazareth, the people became so angry with Jesus that they drove him over out of the town all the way to the edge of a, of, a, of a ravine and pushed him right up against the edge of the cliff and they were ready to get rid of him right then and there. But the Bible says that Jesus passed through their midst and went away. <laughs> How he did that? I have no idea. Was it a miracle? Was it providential blindness of some sort? I don't know. But here's the point, it wasn't God's time. Again, early on in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees were so offended by him that the Bible says, quote, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another how they might do away with Jesus. Luke chapter 6. In Bethsaida, later the Bible says they sought all the more to kill him because, quote, he made himself equal with God, John 5.18. But again, they were unable to lay hold on him because God's timing hadn't come. Earlier in Jerusalem, the Bible says that some of them wanted to arrest him, but none were able to lay hands on him. And finally, when the officers who had been sent to arrest him returned to the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, they were questioned, why didn't you bring him in? And their answer was, no one ever spoke like this man. To where even the Sanhedrin began to question whether the officers were being converted. John chapter 7, verse 46. All along, every step of the way, what you have is that men are trying to bring something about, but God is sovereign over them and preventing it at every step. Try as they may, try as they might, nothing could happen or would happen until God's time and in God's way. Jesus would tell the Roman governor in John chapter 19, verse 11, you have no authority over me unless it is given to you by by God from above. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, the apostles confessed 
that those who crucified the Lord Jesus, listen to this, were, quote, doing whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. All along, God has been in control. Amen? All along, the timing has not come, and so nothing will happen to the Lord Jesus. And now, the ordained time for Christ's sacrifice has finally come. The day is at hand. Two days hence, Jesus says. But I want you to see, secondly, that the timing of Christ's sacrifice was ordained in spite of his enemies and their plans. Look at verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But the outcome of their conversation was that they said, well, let's not do it during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. This feast, of course, the Passover, with all of these people from all over Israel and beyond, and in those great crowds of people, Jesus had many supporters. Think of the throngs of people that apparently came with him from Galilee, and as he was entering into the city, they were proclaiming, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Jewish leaders were fearful that if they arrested Jesus during the time of Passover with all of these supporters around, there would be an uproar, there would be a riot. And so they made this determination. Let's arrest him, but not now. Not during the Passover. I want to ask you, do you think the schemes of man will ever stand in the way of God's sovereign plan? Not during the Passover, they said. But the Bible says that Christ, our Passover, must be sacrificed for us. That the Lamb of God must take away the sins of the world. And it will happen just as God planned. All of those times before, they had wanted to kill Jesus immediately and had been kept from doing so. And now, now they want to put off his arrest and they will be just as unable. God is sovereignly bringing about the perfect sacrifice in spite of his enemies' plans. That's the way God works. And in the providence of God, that sacrifice was also foreshadowed by one of Jesus' devoted followers. Look at verse 6 now. Follow along with me. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And of course, that's exactly what we're doing this morning, isn't it? This story Matthew puts here intentionally. John says it actually happened four days earlier. But reflecting on the providence of God in all of this, Matthew is inspired to insert it here at this point. And, uh, and he tells the story of this amazing woman who John actually also gives us her name. Her name is Mary. She's the famous, one of the famous Mary. It's Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead by Jesus, in fact, probably not too long before. And they were hosting a meal um, in probably a large house, the house of this man, Simon the leper. Um, if he were leprous at the time, of course, he wouldn't be hosting any dinner parties. So he's most likely healed probably by the Lord himself, as far as we know. Um, so here are people who are filled with amazement and thankfulness at the kindness of Jesus to them. And they are having this great gathering. And Mary, Mary, so filled with love and gratitude and devotion to the Lord, she takes her, probably one of her treasured possessions, this jar of, this really ornate jar of really expensive ointment. Um, one of the other gospels says it. the disciples said it, it could probably have brought in 300 denarii, you know, which is probably like almost a year's wages. Hard to imagine that. This is a very costly, very expensive gift that seems to them to be given to no good purpose, just lavished on Jesus. And that's the way sometimes an act of devotion appears to the world to have very little practical um, sense. But to those who are in love with their Savior, it makes all the sense in the world. The disciples say to Mary, why this waste? And of course, the other Gospels tell us that Judas was the primary instigator in saying this, and he, of course, had other motives. He was the keeper of the money and intended to help himself to it, probably. Um, Jesus' answer to them was this, the poor you always have with you, you will not always have me. This is not to diminish in any way looking after the poor. The whole of the scripture points us to that, um, the goodness of that act. But this was to highlight the timing of this act of devotion, right? The timing is what Jesus is focusing on, isn't he? It's, you will always have the poor, but right now this is a critical time for me. I'm going away, you will not have me 
always. And her act is appropriate in light of the nearness of his death and burial, and particularly the kind of death that he was telling them that he was going to die. He would die an ignominious death, tied and nailed naked to a cross, body yanked down, if yanked down at all, the cross cut down perhaps and dumped into a common burial site, no covering, no uh, perfuming, just left to rot and be eaten by the birds and covered in a shallow grave perhaps. This is what Jesus is about to face And Jesus says what she is doing is absolutely appropriate. In fact, it is all under the providence of God. I don't know that Mary herself understood the full significance of what she was doing. Did she understand fully the kind of death that Christ would die? That it would come in the near future and that this was her pre-act of anointing for burial? I don't know. I know the disciples didn't seem to understand this. But in the providence of God, her act anticipated the death and the burial of Jesus. In the providence of God, Mary's act of devotion foreshadowed the imminent death of Christ. Even more amazing, I think, and unexpected is that in the sovereignty of God, the timing of Christ's sacrifice on the cross was actually prompted by a traitor. Here's, remember that the Pharisees, the, the, the Sanhedrin had said to themselves, we should not arrest him during Passover. Let's agree that we're not going to do that because there would be too much of an uproar, right? Well, now take a look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, one of the chief went to, excuse me, the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, on a human level, you wonder what what was motivating Judas. Um The Bible makes it clear on a spiritual level that he was being tempted and led astray, being a tool of the devil himself. You just have to sort of imagine on a human level, Judas as who is an unbeliever, whose ideas, whose worldly ideas of what Jesus would bring Uh, are being disappointed. And moreover, he's a man who loves money, what money can bring. And maybe he's a man who gets himself into trouble financially. Perhaps he's a gambler. But in any case, he's a man who's looking for an opportunity to be on the take We already saw that with his uh, disappointment with not selling the perfume. And now perhaps he's come to a place where 
He's desperate for cash. I don't know. And he's willing to settle even, not for 300 denarii, but he'll take 30 shekels of silver. If that's another name for a denarii, then uh, a month's wages, a mere pittance. Judas is evidently convincing to the Sanhedrin that he is an insider to Jesus' group and could tip them off to a moment, even during the midst of the feast, when Jesus, when they could find Jesus away from the crowds in a quiet place where they could arrest him without an uproar. All this time, they've been meaning to put it off. And now, in the providence of God, his very enemy is the instigation for the moving forward of this timetable. Do you see that? And, of course, that's exactly what Judas was able to to deliver. He got them to Jesus and identified Jesus to them at a moment in the middle of the night when Jesus is all alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. God was determined from eternity past that his son should be a substitute for mankind. And he designed and orchestrated the Passover long before his son came into the world in order to demonstrate what he intended to do through his son. That's the right way to read this history, folks. We don't read it as people who say Jesus and the apostles are cramming Jesus back into the Old Testament and making him fit. We read it as believers in the providence of God all along who designed all of that Old Testament history and ritual to point forward to what he intended to do in the fullness of time. And that's exactly what was happening. God ordained that his son be killed during the Passover celebration. The leaders were determined to wait, but God was ordained. God had ordained, and so Judas prompted them to do what they otherwise would not do. I want you to remember this, that God uses even his enemies to accomplish his purposes. Amen? God uses even his enemies to accomplish his purposes. What they intended for evil, God intended for good. God intended it, ordained it. You're going to need this kind of anchor in the sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters. You're going to need this kind of anchor in a belief in the sovereignty of God or you will go mad. (laughs) When the wicked are prospering, and I tell you, when if you fall into the kind of thinking that the whole world hinges on human elections, you might be tempted to despair. But when we remember that there is a divine election, that God uses even his enemies to accomplish his will in his perfect timing, there is a peace that passes understanding. And lastly, I want you to see from this text that this 
plan of God was determined from of old. It was determined and predicted from ages past. Look at verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, which is the feast of the Passover, they were basically synonymous almost. The Passover began it and it continued on with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the first day of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, and there's our phrase, my time is at hand. Jesus knew finally the hour had come. He says, I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, uh, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. It was one of his closest disciples. Verse 24, Jesus says this. Now pay attention to this. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, Matthew says, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he answered him, uh, he said to him, You have said so. Yes, Jesus says, you know it is so. Verse 24, I think, is the key, uh, really in, in keeping with the theme that's being unfolded all through the beginning of chapter 26. The Son of Man, Jesus says, goes... How? As it is written of him. Then he turns around and says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. You have in this one single verse both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And while they, those two, are not fully comprehensible to Human minds, the Scripture teaches that they are nevertheless compatible. And the history of our Lord Jesus Christ and His death on the cross bear that out better than almost any other testimony in the Scripture. You see, on the one hand, the absolute sovereignty of God who has predicted that this is exactly how it should take place God had ordained from long ago that Christ be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 41, Zechariah chapter 11. It had been written. It had been standing under the prophecy of God for all of those years. And I want to ask you, if God predicted it, was it absolutely certain to happen? Yes, because God is true because he is faithful. Some might even say that it was determined because it was predicted. 
In fact, that's exactly the terminology that the parallel passage to this one in Luke chapter 11 uses when it says, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. You see very clearly the sovereignty of God. And yet, of course, Judas is responsible, absolutely responsible for his actions. Jesus says, woe to that man. It would be better if he hadn't been born. Judas is responsible. He's not coerced by God. You know that? Judas was not coerced by God, but he was acting according to his own nature, according to his own will and desires. And so he and all sinners like like us, uh, will be accountable for our own actions. God doesn't desire or approve of the sin itself, but he does ordain it to his own good ends. I don't quite understand that, Pastor. Well, I think you're probably in good company. I'm not asking you to fully comprehend it. I am asking you to affirm everything that the Scripture says. Here's what the early Baptists in Puritan England wrote about the providence of God. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for the which they were created, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. They went on and said, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth even to the first fall and to all other sinful actions of both angels and men, and that not only by a bare permission, but also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, that is, he sets the the boundaries, the parameters for those sinful actions, and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy end. You see, from eternity past, God had planned and ordained that Christ, our Passover, be sacrificed for us at the very time when the Passover lambs were killed in the place of God's people. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was no accident. It was no fluke. It was no matter of chance, it was not determined by sinful men, it was brought about by the sovereign God of the universe. 
I have told you a couple of times that a while back I had some interaction with a devotee of Sun Myung Moon, the founder of the cult called the Unification Church. And uh, I read a number of talks that Moon gave to American audiences many years ago. And here's what Moon said, Jesus did not come to die. Jesus Christ was murdered. Jesus died on the cross, not of his own will, not of the will of God, but by the will of men. One group of biblical predictions prophesies Jesus' rejection and death, and others prophesy his glorious ministry. Why did God prophesy two contradictory ways in the Bible, says Moon? It is because God had to deal with men, fallen men. He went on to say, in a way, God fears man because of man's ability to betray. Man is unpredictable. Since God did not know how man would respond to his providence for the Messiah, he had no choice but to predict two contradictory results, dual prophecies, each possible depending on men's actions. This is not, I say, the way Jesus uh, demonstrated from the Old Testament scriptures what God had predicted. Jesus says that the prophecies were that the Messiah must first suffer and then enter into his glory. But Moon goes on, he says, the people of Israel could have perfected themselves and their nation if they had united with the coming of the Lord. Instead, he was nailed to the cross. Thus, the mission of Jesus Christ was left undone on earth. He was not given the chance to restore his bride. And this is why Jesus promised his second coming. God's will was denied fulfillment in Jesus' time, and that is why he's coming again as the third Adam. Throughout history, Moon says, God always fulfills his goal at his third attempt. I want to tell you, I am thankful that God doesn't make an attempt to save. God saves, amen? God saves. He doesn't say, listen, child, I will do my very best to save you. Or he doesn't say, I'll do my part if you'll just, if you'll just do everything on your side. Or he doesn't say, well, if I can just get humanity to cooperate, then I'll, I'll bring my plan to fruition. No, God says, the scripture says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's the way the Bible teaches us to think about the unworking of the plan of God in the crucifixion of Christ as in all other things. When God saves, friends, He saves. He saves to the utmost and He saves sovereignly. You will not be lost if it is God's purpose to save you. Oh, what a comfort, what a joy this is for people who are too easily inconsistent, and filled with doubts, and overtaken by weaknesses. Oh, what a joy it is to rest in the providence 
and the good purposes of God. He does not fail to accomplish what He ordains. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Amen. Listen, if you are an unbeliever, not yet in Christ, then I want to tell you that it's no accident that you are here sitting in the service today. You are here under the sovereign decree of God. And it may be that God is using this word to convince you of the truth today as a means of saving you from his coming judgment. And I would admonish you to put your trust in the almighty God who is able to save and in his substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, I want to remind you that the greatest sin in all the world, the murder of God's own Son, was at the same time decreed from of old for your salvation. And in like manner, every moment of your life, even those Judas moments when you experience betrayal and hurt, are ordained by God for your ultimate good. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Amen. And to God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the outworking of our salvation, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ according to your absolutely perfect plan and providence that no detail was left to chance. And we are truly encouraged, Father, today by this. Now we pray that this word would have an ongoing effect in the lives of the hearers that come what may, in all the circumstances of their lives, oh Lord, I pray that you would grant them not a complacency, but a deep rest and peace in your sovereign care. Father, please do this work in my heart, my wife, my children, and in this flock. For your name's sake, amen.